For the last nine years, it has been my extra special privilege to chair the news quiz. It's been exciting, extroverted, and even on occasion extravagant. But before I leave, the news quiz extra is here to give you a bit more sandy for your sound waves, a little more toxic for your transistor, some extra Dane for your brain. So sit back, relax, and join me as I bid an extra fond farewell to the news quiz. It's been extraordinary. We present the News Quiz with your host, Sandy Toxvig. Hello and welcome to the News Quiz. We start... We start with a cutting from Screen International, read by Neil Sleet. Ewan McGregor was in Edinburgh to present his most recent film, in which he plays Lucifer and Jesus. It's so beautifully written, McGregor said, and in some of the scenes I got to play with myself. (laughs) And that's something I enjoy. And our thanks to Mark David Jacobs for sending that in. Now let's meet the teams. Will you welcome first, on my right, Francis Ween and Andy Hamilton. them on my left, Jeremy Hardy and Phil Jupiters. Um, before we start, I do feel there's a bit of an elephant in the room, so I should probably uh, acknowledge uh, that in How fact... How dare you! <laughs> <laughs> it's Phil's birthday! <laughs> so, we... We did. We got you a cake. Here is the thing. We're not allowed to light the candles because of the uh, sprinkler system, and we're not allowed to sing happy birthday because we couldn't get clearance <laughs> on the song. So, happy birthday. That's as exciting as I can make it, really. Thank you. No, sadly, Toxfair. How nice. Could you mind blowing it out, because it's radio? Yeah, it? sure, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it's a flame. <laughs> Yeah! Oh, oh, you've got one of them ones that lights up again. Doll. <laughs> Classic satire. How you doing, yeah. Jupiter? Uh, I'm, I'm very well indeed. I, I wrote a poem, so I'll do it. Uh, this is called Rhymes Up. I sat to pen a tribute to a sassy, classy gal. I thought it would be easy, she's so individual. But staring here before blank page, the panic mounts alongside rage, cos nothing rhymes with Toxvig. <laughs> Our soon departing pal, now you may well be saying, why don't you just use Sandy? Her first name rhymes with many words, deployment would be handy. <laughs> Simplicity does not appeal, this poet's ego will not yield, cos nothing rhymes with Toxvig for my modus operandi. (laughs) So ruefully I have to make up phrases that will fit. Pure logic takes a back seat beside my pride it sits. Crowbarring language, that's no fun. Square peg, round hole. And where's the gun? Cos nothing rhymes with Toxvig. (laughs) Reputation lies in bits. A balding urban mammal might have to wear a fox wig. A farmyard friend with frigid feet could be known as a socks pig. <laughs> Jocks dig, rocks jig sound so dense. Vox lig, pox rig make no sense. Cos nothing rhymes with toxvig 
except mad stuff like box fig. <laughs> My poet's licence was revoked because of verse so bleak. Can't even laugh with Sandy on the news quiz every week. We'll never hear her like again, cos there is nothing like a Dane. See, nothing rhymes with Toxfig, <laughs> because she is unique. Well, I, I think it puts the bar of chocolate Jeremy gave me into the shade. <laughs> And take it back if you don't want it. <laughs> was it on a sale or return? Was it one of... <laughs> well, when he was at the counter, the bloke went, one of these, two quid. How could he say no? <laughs> Thank you, Phil. That was lovely. Andy, who's throwing a pro bono to the poor? Well, as this is a question about Michael Gove, oh. I intend to begin every sentence of my answer with the word however. <laughs> because he's been given strictures against that. However, <laughs> did Michael Gove become Justice Secretary? <laughs> uh, given... <laughs> uh, it's going to get harder now. Uh, <laughs> given uh, what, what a disastrous job he did at education, and I think it's because he brings these radical agendas mm -hmm. and determined approach and so he went round lots of courtrooms in Southwark and Nottingham and he sat in on legal proceedings and he said that our, the legal system is failing the poor you know this government is so committed to getting justice for the poor that that they can barely bring themselves to keep cutting legal aid but uh, <laughs> anyway and one of the um, he made various observations one of them was that um, he thought that lawyers should do more work for free for poor clients, which is what they'll have to do. There's no legal aid anyway. But um, I thought basing a legal system purely around the charitable instincts of lawyers... <laughs> I'm not sure that baby's going to fly. But um, I also thought, I mean, it's a little bit of an easy hit laying into lawyers, you know, politically. I mean, next week, apparently, he's giving a big speech attacking tax wardens... Uh, tax wardens? <laughs> Traffic wardens. Oh, I like the idea of tax wardens. Do you know what? <laughs> That's because, for the first time... I've, see, I've had a drink before I come on. I never normally <laughs> do. And you see, I'm just not used to alcohol during traffic. He's uh, got a knife! <laughs> <laughs> Careful, because I'm a fighting drunk after... <laughs> Yeah, backstage we call him Shandy Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, he's uh, basically he's he's been attacking the legal profession and saying that uh, I think he was saying it was very slow, which of course it is very slow. But I did jury service and I noticed and what well, the trial was very slow. But I noticed that often it was very slow because the judge was bending over backwards to be scrupulously fair. I think you've got to be careful about speeding it up, you know, about which stages of the legal process you jettison, because trials in North Korea are pretty quick. <laughs> but, you, you know, however... <laughs> I don't think he's proposing that. He did do... There were lots of words that he uh, sent around saying that he didn't like... Apparently, uh, civil servants should refrain from using the word unnecessary. Uh, which I suppose he hopes will stop them talking about his career. Um... It's all about redefinition. If the problem is that it's the poor who are not getting justice, then we need to redefine 
if you redefine the defendant as guilty, it saves a whole <laughs> process. You don't have to get all those 12 blokes to argue with Henry Fonda for an hour and a half. <laughs> Jeremy, they did do that because in the last uh, government and the last bill that they passed in this regard, you have to pay £150 to plead guilty and £750 to plead not guilty. And people are pleading guilty because it's cheaper. I mean, there is one other thing that slows it up is there is an enormous amount of litigation now, and that, you know, just the sheer volume cases. And a lot of it is um, probably as a result of those people who sort of pose as red hot lawyers and who go on the telly and said, had an accident and it wasn't your fault, we'll get you the money you deserve. And I was thinking about this, I was thinking, well, if you're a really good lawyer, the advert should read, had an accident, it was your fault, we'll get you the money anyway. (laughs) That's the lawyer you want, isn't it? Uh, Michael Gove, the gift to the news quiz that just keeps on giving, has used his first speech as Justice Secretary to outline proposals for reform to what he described as a two-nation justice system which fails those who aren't rich, including making lawyers do more pro bono work. Lord Gove, who has no legal experience of any kind, apart from two day trips to Southwark Crown Court... (laughs) Outlined plans such as the use of IT, saving money by scrapping juries and asking the stenographer what she thought instead. (laughs) Uh, Two points to Andy. Jeremy, who's got no truck with Italian immigration control? What do you care? You're leaving. (laughs) Never mind about us. Just go. Never mind that we'll be worried sick about you. Just go off and join your women's nagging party and have a... Have a old time, why don't you? You We'll just be here... We'll just be here waiting, thinking she'll be back, she'll be back. She won't get far. It's like when a four-year-old runs away from home and they put a banana in a carrier bag and they make it as far as the post office and then come home. She won't. Anyway. uh, (laughs) David Cameron, who has pronounced the situation in Calais unacceptable, Uh. which is a word. Fair enough. Um... But he said, it's not Britain and France should not point the finger at each other. They should get together and blame the eye ties. <laughs> it's Italy's fault. Because if you go to Italy, it's full of foreigners. Do you know what? <laughs> the whole place is swarming with Italians. You know, it's, it's unbelievable. They, they get everywhere. You, you, you could be in downtown Sorrento, honestly, when you're in Sorrento. I felt like a, <laughs> I felt like a foreigner in my own holiday destination. <laughs> What they do is they pluck the the desperate drowning people out of the sea and they don't fingerprint them, you know, perhaps because their hands are all wet and they think, well, that would be a waste of time. But instead of documenting them like our glorious leader wants them to, all they do, they get them out of the sea, they put them on a boat, they pump water out of their lungs and they feed them and dry them with a towel. Have they learnt nothing from Mussolini, these people? (laughs) So what they need to do is document them. That's what you've got to do with people who are terrified and left a war zone and traumatised and are too scared to even have their papers with them or give their name. And they'll say something and write that and fingerprint them because that's always useful. You can never do with too many fingerprints. Fing- finger painting they could do with them. <laughs> and so because of the Italians uh, getting these people out of the sea, there are delays. There are delays. No. Our truck drivers are being delayed and terrified by starving people trying to jump into the back of their lorries and then being taken off again, our lorry drivers are being minorly inconvenienced. So I love it's an outrage. I it's love outrage. this because they kept showing, didn't they, endless photographs we had of British lorries stuck. And what I love about this story, despite the fact that it involves French workers and Italian immigration officers and migrants from all over the world, this essentially, it's a really British story because it's essentially about a traffic jam. <laughs> needs is, I don't know, somebody's dad releasing a statement that they should have taken a detour on the A258. And I just think it's What's great is when the French do something, they just 
burn some sheep in the middle of the road and turn something upside down. Whereas here, people go, Kyoh. I mean, you know... <laughs> the refugees, because all these people living in the jungle at Calais, this encampment, they're described by Cameron and people over here as being desperate to get to Britain and have got to be rebuffed. But actually, they're desperate to get out of France, most specifically. <laughs> um, and I, there were a couple of them interviewed uh, this week on the BBC, and they said, yeah, we want to get out of France. Why? Because the language, you can't learn French. Oh, we, we work to rule, which is you do what you're supposed to do. I mean, that's our idea of industrial action, is doing your job properly in the normal way. <laughs> <laughs> it must be, it must, when, when the Prime Minister criticised the Italians, that must be the first time that a country has been attacked purely because of its geographical position, isn't it? I mean, basically, he was accusing Italy of being irresponsibly near to North Africa. <laughs> but the French are so much better at striking than we are, aren't they? It seems very organised and it's, they seem very cross. We get, I don't know, one man with a loud hailer and a high-vis vest who keeps forgetting what we want and when we want it. <laughs> The deputy mayor of Calais came out with a great quote. He said, uh, the British hold the town of Calais in contempt. And he thought, he just doesn't understand British xenophobia at all. <laughs> we, we despise entire nations. We don't, <laughs> we don't single out coastal towns. Weird, though, seeing David Cameron defending the French. I thought, oh, my God, it's like seeing Vladimir Putin in a, I don't know, a pair of hot pants at the front of a pride march. It was really... <laughs> it was, well, I, you've got a feel for the Italians in this, though, because whenever anything goes wrong over there, you can imagine them all looking round through a big Berlusconi-shaped hole, going, hey, where's the guy gone we used to blame for everything? <laughs> Uh, David Cameron called on Italy to provide better documentation of migrants after a French ferry worker strike led to thousands of asylum seekers attempting to board held-up British-bound lorries. There was chaos in Calais as a result of the strikes, which happen every summer. It's the French equivalent of Wimbledon, except <laughs> that with a strike, a Frenchman is more likely to reach the second week. <laughs> It took extraordinary restraint for Cameron not to lay blame for the situation squarely on the striking French. They're striking and they're French. They were right in the middle of the Venn diagram of people that posh Britons like to blame for this stuff. <laughs> Desperate to attack someone else, he blamed the Italians for poor border checking before lashing out at the puppets from the Dolmeo adverts. <laughs> said he was willing to invest in further fencing at the Calais port, although none of the cabinet were clear how extra sword fighting was going to help. <laughs> Two points to Jeremy. Phil, why has an argument been iron brewing this week with backing down Palace? Oh, she's got to do up Buckingham Palace. They've got to move out. There's the thought. Where's the Queen? Oh, you see her now? She's on Airbnb. Where, where are we going to go? We need somewhere central. <laughs> the dear old Queen Mum, she stayed throughout the Blitz. She didn't leave just because of the builders pulling asbestos out. No, the dear old Queen Mum, she stayed there. But what is the story? Do we know what the story is? Because otherwise I'm going to have to... These, uh, well, I know. Yeah, do you know? Good. Oh, it's my birthday present. He's um, going to answer this one. OK, <laughs> some palace spokesman... Uh, not Crystal Palace, uh, Buckingham Palace. Some palace spokesman said that the jocks were going to withhold the money which is due from the Queen's Crown Estates in Scotland, which would be the profits, which would be two million. And then Nicola Sturgeon said, no, we won't, we'll give it to her. That's fine, she can have that. <laughs> and, uh, in it's like she was in the room. I know. <laughs> so, for listeners in Scotland, that was your accent in case you were confused. <laughs> of course... 
Her Royal Majesty can have her two million pounds for having asbestos removed from Prince Philip's mind. <laughs> and um, and uh, so some spokesman is in massive amount of trouble because he was trying to create a problem. And they said, no, we're ardent monarchists and huge fans of Trident and the, and the English, and no one is more unionist than the SNP. I'd say, I, she, I, is, she is fantastic, a royalist, as, as apparently they all are, because in the run-up to the referendum last year, they were all saying, no, 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 whatever happens, even if we're independent, we're going to carry on with the Queen. We're she's so the Queen royalist. of Scotland? Yeah. She said a thing, say, by hook or by crook, we all make sure the Queen gets her money. She's going to do this thing. It's, it's like, remember the Pirates of Penzance? You remember the Pirates of Penzance, when the, these pirates <laughs> kidnap these young ladies and... It's all ghastly, but then along come the police and say, we command you yield in Queen Victoria's name. Mm. And then these bloodthirsty pirates of Penzance say, of course we have to yield, because it's in Queen Victoria's name, because uh, for all our faults we love our Queen. Or like that. <laughs> um, and they all give up. And Nicola Sturgeon is exactly like that. She's a pirate of Penzance. I, have to say, I didn't understand this. All I saw in the paper was rift between Queen and Nicola Sturgeon. I thought, well, she'll never replace Freddie Mercury. That's... <laughs> No, no disrespect to Her Majesty, who's, what, 90, 89? She's, um, she's 89. She's 89, same age as me dad. Now, my dad is a very, very bright man, but no way would I give him two million quid <laughs> and expect him to do something sensible with it. <laughs> He'd leave it somewhere. He'd go out and buy two million lottery tickets. But I mean, how... Demeaning if they had withdrawn the money to see an 89 year old monarch trying to secure a payday loan from Wonga. I... <laughs> Awful. They're, but they're, actually, the same week they reported record profits for the Crown Estate. And then the, the story comes out that Buckingham Palace needs £180 million worth of work, mostly on the roof. And you think, how did they let it get in that state? What's she been doing with all that money? She's been feeding caviar to the well, corgis. Well, they say that because of the asbestos. You think, she's 89, Philip's, what, 92? I mean, is, is the health risk of asbestos really... <laughs> ..really going to be the thing that tips them over the edge? The last person on the roof was Brian May, wasn't it? <laughs> Ended up with a hammer, maybe. You could have had a look for him, yeah. 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 Um, anybody uh, see the Queen where she's been recently? Yes, she's, she's been... Sorry. back to see uh, her ancestors, I think. Mm. Yes. In Germany, visiting family. She's been seeing the family <laughs> where, in Germany. Where I noticed a... that the glossy magazines... See, I never... Maybe it's because I'm a post-war child. I've always got that lurking distrust of Germans. And I noticed that the glossy magazines are calling her... De Queen. But how do we know that's not pronounced Die Queen? We... <laughs> but did you see the wonderful painting she I was given? I did. She was given a painting of herself riding a blue horse. And with a picture like of her it. father, but she had to say, is that meant to be my father? Well, what I <laughs> liked is... And they the... said, yeah, the President said, yes. She doesn't look like him. She was rather, she was rather rude yes. uh, about it. Um, the painter said... She's 89, she can say what she likes. <laughs> yeah, but the painter said, the pony is royal blue for a royal horse. That's the joke. And I thought, there's your classic German wit there. <laughs> Upset the uh, the woman who painted the picture. She was quite rude about it. Mind you, what's the worst thing that could happen if you piss off a German painter? <laughs> 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 so, I, I 
say something I discovered. Can someone explain to me why Prince Charles has got properties in Transylvania? Yes, he has. And uh, Romania, um, he's got quite a lot in Romania that he rents out. Apparently you, you can go to his bed and breakfast. You literally can go and have bed and breakfast in, in Charlie's place in Romania. One, one bed and breakfast. Two, two bed and breakfast. <laughs> ah, ah, ah. <laughs> I love to have property in Transylvania. Um, the extraordinary number of people who turned out in Berlin... <laughs> Uh, wonderful people turn out in Berlin to see the Queen. Apparently, she's very popular. There was a man called Mark Schultz, and he said, I've met Fiona Bruce, Anton Deck, and Boris Johnson, but this was a real bucket list dream come true. <laughs> uh, Buckingham Palace has retracted its claim that the Scottish Government would cut the royal family's funding once it gains devolved control of the Crown Estate north of the border. The Queen is one of the biggest landowners in Scotland behind the Burger King. <laughs> The royal family owns swathes of farmland, the whole of Regent Street in London, and the entire UK seabed, and as a result are the only people in Britain allowed to eat a mermaid. Uh, the claims had come from Sir Alan Reed, the keeper of the privy purse, which is what the Queen calls her lady bits. You're, you're already halfway out the door, you are, aren't you? Francis, have a listen to this. Now, I know that song as coming from the show Annie, but apparently that's by Jay Z. Wow. <laughs> Have I upset you, Phil? <laughs> no, no, but I just... I adore you. <laughs> Is Francis. That, that chap who's married to a bouncy? Yes. <laughs> I, I wish you and I were on Radio 1. I feel like a new way forward. Uh, Francis, why do we have a poor definition for children? Oh, well, this is the most astonishing story of the week. Ian Duncan Smith is a Machiavellian genius. <laughs> a few days ago... There were all these pieces in the papers and the television saying that the government was about to have to announce new figures showing that child poverty had got worse mm. for the first time in ten years or more. And this was very embarrassing for Ian Duncan Smith. Then, uh, at the same time, the Cabinet had met on Tuesday to discuss what to do about it, and they decided to redefine child poverty. That was what to do about <laughs> it, so they wouldn't get into this pickle again. And so they're going ahead with it. And so, of course, you know, all these things say, yeah, well, he's only doing that because he doesn't like the facts. He can't face them, so they have to change the rules. You know, it's like standing on the bathroom scales and not liking what it says and throwing them out of the window. Or in Duncan Smith's case, you know, looking in the shaving mirror every morning and smashing it because he doesn't like what he sees. He can't face the facts. And actually, if you look like in Duncan Smith, that is what you do with shaving mirrors every morning. Francis, I do know about these things. Like... Like... <laughs> <laughs> it costs a small fortune, but anyway... Um... So there he was, ready to be torn to shreds by the Labour Party. Then on Thursday, to everyone's astonishment, the Office of National Statistics produced these figures, which Duncan Smith had known about for days, showing that child poverty hadn't actually got worse. Uh, the, the figures for child poverty had, if anything, gone down slightly. Uh, and there he was, looking immensely smug with himself, like a man who's got 83 shaving mirrors stacked up at home. Really. <laughs> And um, he'd shot the Labour Party's fox, is how I think it's put in Westminster jargon. But I was, I was a bit concerned, that because the, the, there's going to be a child poverty action plan, isn't there? And I was very worried that the plan is going to be to privatise all our children. Then I thought, actually, Circo is a lovely girl's name. I think, 
I blame Dickens. Okay. Uh, I think he gave us a very cliched idea of poverty, you know, because what you hear people saying is, oh, they're not poor. Look, he's got a, he's got a mobile phone. But um, I should imagine people were saying the same thing around the time of Dickens, you know. Oh, they say they're poor, but look, look, that man can afford a cudgel. <laughs> but you see, a Charles Dickens novel, that, to Michael Gove, that's a policy document. <laughs> Uh, David Cameron is considering changing the measurement of child poverty in advance of the release of the below-average income statistics, which show 2.3 million children in the UK officially living in poverty. The current definition of child poverty is based on whether a child lives in a household with an income of less than 60% of the national average or one full of Victorian urchins telling you to consider yourself part of the furniture. <laughs> Cameron has said before that poverty is relative. Relative poverty, of course, being what Cameron calls his cousin Richard who's a tree surgeon and rather tragically drives around in a second-hand Saab. <laughs> uh, at the end of round one, the scores are Jeremy and Phil have got four points, but in the lead already are Francis and Andy with five. <laughs> we start round two with a cutting from the RTE website. Men urged to look after their health during Men's Health Week. <laughs> and our thanks to Liam Hayes for sending us that. Francis, why might nurses be making a home visit? Well, the Home Office, Theresa May, wants to chuck out economic migrants who uh, come over here legally to work and better themselves. If they are not earning more than 35 grand after six years, she's going to expel them because she says she wants only the brightest and the best, which means the richest. And unfortunately, this turns out to include most of the nurses in the National Health Service. And so I think next April, when these rules come into force... She's going to chuck out over 3,000 nurses, and by 2020, she'll have chucked out about 30,000. You need um, to incentivise them to earn more money. Yes. Yeah. So the way they incentivise people on tax credits is take away the tax credits. So clearly, what we need to do with these nurses is cut their wages, and then they'll be richer. <laughs> I like some of the language. Uh, the chief executive of the Royal College of Nurses, Peter Carter, said that because of the immigration rules, trusts had to deliver services with both hands tied behind their backs. I thought, oh, that makes an appendectomy, like bobbing for apples. <laughs> Jolly. At the Royal College of Nursing has warned that new rules for non-EU workers could cause chaos in the NHS. The proposals mean people who've been in the UK for more than six years and who earn less than £35,000 will be deported. <laughs> Finally, the truth about me leaving the news quiz comes out. Um, <laughs> Research shows if nurses are deported, we would have to spend £20 million to recruit over 3,000 nurses, or alternatively, one giant one. <laughs> At Shadow, Home Secretary Yvette Cooper accused the government of delivering the worst of all worlds, briefly forgetting about Oak Furniture World off the A39 <laughs> I do think we relied too much on foreign nurses. You can do an enema on your own with a turkey baster and a can-do attitude, so... <laughs> <laughs> There's your That's... clip for pick of the week. <laughs> Two points to Francis. Andy, have a listen to this.
Andy, who's nice. paying... So it was nice. Sorry. It was nice. Yes. Did you like it? Yeah. Like old times. Yeah, it's very nice. Sandy sings that in her head every week. <laughs> uh, Andy, who's paying the price for not living life in the fast lane? Right, this is um, someone who was fined, I believe it's the first time, mm-hmm. for uh, hogging the middle lane. Uh, it just feels a bit harsh to me. I mean, people stay in the middle lane on motorways. Uh, it's basically finding somebody for Englishness, isn't it? You stay in the middle lane because you want the quiet life. I mean, and often, staying in the middle lane and maintaining a constant speed is much safer, especially if you've had a few drinks. <laughs> That's just a joke, by the way. I don't, want to have to, I don't want any official BBC apology because of that. So, anyway, he's been fined, and, uh, yeah, I think it's a bit harsh. Did you see the footage of this, the guy as they got him? No. He was just basically doing about 50 on a motorway in the middle of the lane, just all these people behind him, this kind of snaking along. What? And the thing is, you feel guilty going down the inside. Do you Do know this? the only vehicle allowed to undertake on a motorway, the legally allowed to undertake on a motorway? My Jeep. It's a hearse. <laughs> and a hearse is legally well, allowed. Well, my Jeep is black. Ah, but you'd know you were going slowly, wouldn't you, if you were undertaken by a hearse. You'd be <laughs> well, going a little bit... Is that what they're on... called, undertakers? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In what is believed to be the first case of its kind, Ian Stevens, a painter and decorator from Wigan, has been convicted of careless driving for hogging the middle motorway lane. Ian Stevens is a 42-year-old granddad of three. Well, that's what happens when you're bad at pulling out at the right time. <laughs> Halfway out the door, stuff that she would just never do any other time. This is outrageous. <laughs> Nine years we've been waiting for this kind of gold, Sandy. (laughs) Mr Stevens was charged £940 for the offence, with no-one surprised at the size of the bill for a painter and decorator going slower than necessary. (laughs) Lane hogging was made illegal in 2013, and offenders can be punished with £100 on the spot fine or a sandwich from a wild bean cafe. (laughs) Two points to Andy. Jeremy, can you give me the skinny on why health problems could all be in the genes? A woman in Australia was cleaning out her friend's cupboards, which isn't a euphemism, (laughs) and uh, she was squatting, and uh, she was wearing skinny jeans, and because she was kneeling for... Or squatting, because I don't know why you would squat. You'd you'd think you'd kneel rather than squat, wouldn't you? But she squatted, apparently. When she was walking home, she got a terrible pain in her legs and collapsed, and it took like hours for anyone to find her because no one lives in Australia. It's, it's the size of Mars and has a population the size of the Tesco Express on Streatham Hill. <laughs> and so no one lives there. So you can be, it takes hours to be found. And if you are found, you can be made prime minister on the spot because they have such a, such a skill shortage. But she, um, her legs all swole up mm. she was, and they, she was rushed to hospital and they had to cut her out of her jeans, which isn't surprising because... Lots of skinny jeans people would have to be cut out of. But then whether jeans are skinny or not rather depends on your physique. Now, for example, Philip here. Were Philip wearing Oxford bags circa 1936, Mm. they would be skinny on him. Yeah. I mean, I was once cut out of a changing room, so that gives you... (laughs) ..the kind of scale we're talking about say there was some uh, we've got a sort of slightly extra cutting but there was the most fantastic tweet from st john's ambulance a warning about the health risks involved with skinny jeans 
Skinny jeans have been branded a health hazard. Remove your jeans immediately if you feel any swelling or throbbing. <laughs> well done, St John's. Uh, is it's one person in the entire world has ever had this happen to them while wearing skinny jeans and it's in a, a neurological magazine purely because it's such a rare case and it's just a curiosity they put in yeah. and then it turns up over here on the front pages as watch out Kate it's official skinny jeans are dangerous uh, skinny jeans will ruin your life and this sort of thing when I say Kate Moss or the Kate who's married to Prince William or any old Kate who wears skinny jeans so they can print pictures of all these glamorous celebs in mm. skinny jeans and the NHS put out a very good thing about it saying we don't think there's any cause for alarm um, we don't think this would be getting front page coverage if it had been a similar piece about someone wearing a cagoule <laughs> To be fair, I once was in extreme pain caused by a pair of jeans, but that was just because I was a bit clumsy with a zip. <laughs> I mean, do they not feel pain in Australia? I mean, it, because she couldn't walk for four days was mm. the story. I mean, you know, pain is, is this very useful thing. It's our body's way of telling us when we're doing something stupid. If you've got a personal trainer, they'll say that it's good that you're in pain. But clearly it's not. All that feel the burn, all that, you know, you should be in pain. No. Pain, tiredness and lethargy and apathy are nature's way of telling you to stop and relax. Yeah. And they are the four dwarves not in the story. <laughs> <laughs> A health warning has been issued on skinny jeans after an Australian woman was hospitalised when her tight trousers caused her to suffer a nerve blockage known as compartment syndrome. Ill effects of too tight trousers can include cutting off circulation to the feet, muscle damage in the calves and being mistaken for half of Jedward. <laughs> skinny jeans can seriously damage muscles and nerves and in the case of Russell Brand have been known to cut off all sense of perspective. <laughs> Add two points to Jeremy. Phil, which death gave life to a British institution? Yeah, is it the plague? It is. Is it is. the Black Death? It right, is. So what was the Black Death killed a lot of people and... What happened was, because the population was smaller, there were less people to fill the workforce. Black Death saw the death of feudalism mm. because your serfs and your vassals and uh, your... Uh, um, villains. Your villains and uh, your Lannisters and your... <laughs> your orcs. They <laughs> could, hobbits, could all... Uh, the Lord would say, right, come on, back here. I need you slaving again so I can smash you about a bit. And they go, no... Right. And then, and he's got no one to take. Uh, there's no one to fill their place as vassals anymore. They could move around. There were more mobile workforce, and there was more sort of leisure time. They, everyone was working. So? Everyone had more money. So pubs. Yes. Pubs started after the Black Death. Obviously, the dance teams were a bit depleted. <laughs> I like the idea of darts maybe beginning as a game to determine who best could lance boils from a distance. <laughs> The, um, weirdly, the Black Death once got me into terrible trouble. I stayed in a terrible hotel in Weymouth, and I was asked to write about it. And I, I wrote that, uh, historically, Weymouth is the place that the Black Death entered Britain, and I wasn't the least bit surprised. Um, <laughs> I got banned by the uh, town council from ever coming to Weymouth again, and I've not dared go back, so I... Oh, there's a whole plague section on TripAdvisor. Is there? Oh, okay. <laughs> It wasn't just pubs, was it? It was leisure. Yeah. It meant that working people had disposable income because it also created football, 
which until the plague had been like 70 a side and had been unmanageable. <laughs> and when it was reduced to 11 a side. Andy, I don't want to step on your toes, son, but you launching it the football stuff. How long have you been doing this show with her? What? Football. She loves football. Seriously. Come on now. <laughs> she loves football. It's just this intellectual thing. That's just for Radio 4 purposes. Seriously, she's, she's, she's down, down Millwall every, every week. week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, I'll see it now. What they do is they throw her over the fencing at the opposing fans. <laughs> She was, she was at Cheltenham Ladies College with Vinnie Jones and she taught him... <laughs> she taught him how to speak nicely. She did. I tell you what, will you take me to a football... I should go, Andy, will you I said I'd do that, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah. You I'll could take, take her you. to polo, she wouldn't know. <laughs> so the answer is that people were better off because of the Black Death because they because were they dead. Because they demand higher wages. Because it creates yeah, a shortage yeah. of labour. Yeah. Yeah, that makes oh, sense. Oh, you imagine the first bloke going into the first pub, walking in there. All right, Dave, dead in here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, uh, one of the best ways to get a glimpse into what life was like in the 1300s is to spend an evening at a Yeats's wine lodge. <laughs> <laughs> or Basingstoke. <laughs> Are you touring at the minute? <laughs> Down there, I'm you, in the clear. Are you looking for a Weymouth-style ban? <laughs> uh, according to Robert Toombs, Professor of History at Cambridge University, the Black Death led to less competition for work, higher living standards and more free time, which gave rise to the pub as we know it today. While pubs became popular, pub quizzes were very infrequent, as it took monks years to create a single picture round. <laughs> Before we reveal the final scores, has anybody got a cutting that they wish to share with me? I have, yes. Alan McGowan very kindly sent this in from the Aldershot News and Mail. The councillor said, when I go into Aldershot Town Centre in the morning, the whole place is covered in litter. Lots of half-finished glasses of lager and urine. <laughs> I am indebted to uh, Nicola Mester who has sent this one. It's on a recently bought new tyre gauge, along with the instructions. It featured the sentence, push gauge onto valve and view the pressure reading. Then came the additional advice, the tyre gauge must not be used while the vehicle is moving. <laughs> I am indebted to the Woolwich Building Society. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> This was, um, this, was sent in, this was sent in by Paul Rothwell of Holmfirth. It's from BBC Sport website and it's about the new Rangers manager, who I shall assume for the purposes of this is Scottish. I would say my strengths as manager are recruiting, improving people and getting the best out of them, said McCall, immediately after the 6-1 aggregate defeat to his former club Motherwell. <laughs> I don't actually have a cutting, sadly, because I've been tasked by the producers to introduce a tribute to yourself, because you've chaired this programme so magnificently over so many years, and um, what many listeners at home won't realise, that you've done that despite being barely able to see over that desk. <laughs> um, so now they're going to play in some recorded highlights of your tenure on the news, Chris. Everybody should start their day with Danish bacon. And I've got a supplementary question that you might know, Alan. Why is it getting well, harder? Well, that's a bit condescending. Why did it mean so? <laughs> is it how old are you? <laughs> At least I didn't say it very loud. All right, Alan. What? Molly coddle. That's a good word, isn't it? Molly coddle. Well done for saying that. Thank you. <laughs> it looked awfully big as I went towards it. <laughs> 
Oh, it's not about our common ancestor being tiny, very little feet and a very little brain. That's no way to talk about me. It, it isn't. <laughs> and John Burko, very small, and sits in the middle of Parliament's answer to Sandy Toxvig. <laughs> um, Sandy has been suspended for biting the producer's knees. Andy. Oh, here we go. Blah, 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 football, blah. <laughs> Scottish football team. No, on the grounds that we don't care. I think it's all been very inspiring. My personal best in the 100 metres is very nearly 50 metres at the minute. (laughs) Start round two with a notice on the side of a packet of Nivea for men. (laughs) (laughs) We don't need it. (laughs) 24-hour moisturiser. Applied twice a day. Thinks. You like a glass of wine? What do you think of it, Peter? Is this? Uh, I, I, Hello. I, 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 I hate it when I wake the newsreader during the program. <laughs> David, who hasn't been forking out for anything that isn't French? Some guy. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so guy. two points some to David. Let's just, yeah. let's just crack through this, shall we? <laughs> Sorry, I was thinking. Um, I knew it was a new look. I sort of blame the BBC, really. I mean, 30 years ago, they came up with this idea of convening five socially disparate ignoramuses in a basement, and this is where we still are. (laughs) It's like the world's most dysfunctional family. Jeremy, you have to stop, because I'm going to die. (laughs) Genuinely the strangest news quiz. Six years I've sat in this chair, I've never bloody won. Final score, Jeremy and Phil. I don't really care. Um, Jeremy and Phil have got 12 points. This week's winners are Francis and Andy with 14. Before we leave you, here is a cutting from a Times article about Danish sperm donors. Jesper, a student, has been donating two or three times a week for a year at the Nordic Cryobank. I'm only 22, he said, so I plan to carry on donating as long as I can. There's no point pulling out now. And with that, for the very last time, goodbye. Taking part in the news quiz were Francis Ween, Andy Hamilton, Jeremy Hardy and Phil Jupitus. In the chair was Sandy Tonkswick, and the news was read by me, Neil Sleet. The chair's script was written by Andy Walton, Benjamin Partridge and Gabby Hutchinson-Crouch, with additional material by James Bentis and Max Davis. The producer was Lindsay Fenner, and it was a BBC radio comedy production. No, that was my last news quiz as chair. But if you can't bring yourself to say goodbye just yet, you can watch a video of me and my guests in action by going to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio4 and clicking on highlights. Radio with pictures. What will they think of next?